as Peter professed, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Literally, it won't be able to stand against it. Uh, The gates of hell itself will not be able to withstand the expansion and the onslaught of the gospel message. As we take the redemption message forward, as we proclaim it, quite factually, we are reaching through the gates of hell and snatching out of it the grips, the people that are in the grips of Satan. We're reaching through and grabbing them with the gospel as the Holy Spirit draws them to God, taking them out of Satan's grips. Hell cannot withstand the power of the proclamation of the gospel. And because of that, the church has been growing and expanding for 2,000 years as Christ throughout history gathers a redeemed people to himself of his choosing. And as the Holy Spirit draws us to God, he regenerates our heart, he imputes us with the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, and then permanently indwells us, we are then spiritually deposited or placed into the body of Christ. His church. It's a spiritual body. So we are now holy and set apart to God's purposes for His plan. We are a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9 says, We are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you or us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. God rescued us from the darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son so that we can herald the forgiveness of sins available through Jesus, through His death, through His burial, and then His resurrection from the grave. It was all accomplished on our behalf. He died for our sins. He was buried into death, and He was rose again to new life for us. He did it all. And for some reason... God decided to bring us into this spiritual body and make us useful to Him. Each of us was at one time useless. We were an Onesimus. If you remember in the brief letter of Philemon, the Apostle Paul was writing a close friend of his, a close Christian friend named Philemon. And Philemon had a worthless and rebellious slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus had stolen from Philemon and then run off to Rome. But there fate caught up with Onesimus. And at some point, Onesimus discovered that his life was pointless. It was vain. Had no purpose. And his position in society was that of a slave. He'd become a lawbreaker. He had run from his master, which was punishable by death. He was a thief, and we know that, uh, as with every thief that we've ever seen out there, watch the news, watch the bank robbers, at some point every thief runs out of money. So what do they do? They turn and become a thief again. They steal again. And, And it's probable, more than possible, probable that Onesimus finally got caught up, got caught by the authorities, and got put into prison where he found the Apostle Paul. 
who was there for his faith. And, and we might imagine that Onesimus was lying in his cell, blaming the whole world around him for his problems, or just how unfair life was to him. And at some point in time, the Apostle Paul clarified the truth to Onesimus. Onesimus, the problem is not the world around you. The problem, it's not the unfair social order that everyone experiences to one level, some worse than others. The problem is not how your parents raised you, nor how that certain someone in your past might have mistreated you. Those are all unfortunate. The problem, Onesimus, is you. Recognize that you are a sinner. That is the problem. Own up to it, Paul would have told him. You're your own worst problem. Then Paul presented the only solution that God gave for this entire planet on how to be saved. And the good news is that that God sent His perfect, beloved, sinless Son in order to die for our sins. And then Jesus overcame the power of that sin as He was buried and then rose again from the grave. He overpowered hell. Jesus is Lord, new Onesimus, serve him, Onesimus. And Onesimus saw the light of the gospel and was saved from the power of, that sin had over him. So Paul then is writing Philemon, Onesimus' master, and informs him that Onesimus now has become a Christian. And he tells Philemon this, Though Onesimus was formerly useless, now he is useful both to you and to me, he said in Philemon 11. Both to you and to me, meaning the church. Philemon was now useless to the church. And that was because Onesimus was placed into the same spiritual body as to which we all belong, the church. If you too have by faith received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are now useful In fact, the name of the slave Onesimus, Onesimus, the word, means useful. You are Onesimus. You are the useful slave. In fact, um, a favorite title that writers of the New Testament would use to describe themselves was that of a bond servant or a bond slave. The Greek term has to do with with having that corresponding mental attitude of being a slave to someone. You view yourself as a slave. Listen to how the New Testament writers describe themselves as they open up into their epistles. They introduce themselves in this way. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and and the brother of James. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Listen to Peter's full introduction. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why don't we open up letters like that anymore when we write, huh? Your next email? And the term's not only reserved for first century apostles and scripture writers that the Holy Spirit used. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he describes others 
In Colossians, he speaks of Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful and servant of Christ. Colossians 4, 7. As to all my affairs, Paul says, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, he will bring you information. And then in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the intro, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. All bondservants. And, and you know what? The, the title isn't even used exclusively by Christians. It, and it's used by outsiders. In Acts 16, the slave girl walking in the streets of Thyatira, if you remember, she cried out and she classifies Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke who are walking together and says, these men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Amen. And in fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there we discover these men didn't only offer themselves to serve Christ. They offered themselves as bond servants to serve other Christians. In verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, Paul says, and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus Christ's sake. Besides all of these Christians being identified as bondservants of Christ and of his, church, of his church, do you notice anything else that all these bondservants have in common? They're all dead. Every single one of them. All dead. Epaphras, Titus, Barnabas, Mark, Luke, the apostles, they're all dead. And, and all that talent that they had was useful for a season. Useful for a season. And then these bondservants went home to be with their master, Jesus Christ. Did Christ stop building his church when these people died? When those first century saints went to be with their Lord, did he stop? No. The church keeps on growing and going, even if you and I don't. And as Christ continues to raise up new bond servants that are useful, and, and in every era of the church history we see them, they have names like Polycarp and, and Tertullian, Augustine. How about Wycliffe, Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and Crosby and, and Tozer. And the list goes on and on and on of all these people that we've heard of, all these saints that we know. But there are scores of others that we don't know. But God knows. God knows. And, and is your name on there? Are you Onesimus? Are you useful? Every generation, there's been a changing of the guard. A changing of the guard. Today the church is in our hands for a season. For a season. It, it, it's been God's plan all along. And Christ realized from the beginning of the church that we'd face difficulties. How can you possibly bring sinners together, even redeem sinners? Yes, redeem sinners from different races, different economic situations, different cultures, different traditions. All these differences and bringing sinners together. And how can God mold them into something useful? 
with all these differences. How does Jesus Christ build a church across centuries and across oceans and mold them into useful slaves? How does he do that? What is the blueprint that unites all Christians of every age in conformity and discipline? 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. The Word of God makes us useful. It keeps us in conformity to Christ Jesus. Those are the words written by Christ's bondservant Paul at what we could call the changing of the guard. The changing of the guard. Second Timothy, where that, letter, where that, phrase came, or from, where that passage came from, it was the final letter written by the Apostle Paul before he was martyred. And he's handing the baton to young Timothy, who was in Ephesus at the time. Scripture, Paul is telling him, it's the Christian's user guide. It's the user manual. And since Scripture is breathed out by God, it's inspired by God, it's breathed out, it never goes out of date, it never gets revised, the ink doesn't fade. Most importantly, the model of ministry that is contained in it doesn't change year over year. It's not like your Buick. The headlights of one eight years ago won't fit the one that you buy today. No, Scripture remains consistent. Ministry remains consistent. And, and at the changing of the guard, the people change, but the church model doesn't. The basic church model doesn't. And after 2,000 years, we're still dependent on prayer. We're committed to fellowship and the breaking of the bread. And we're focused on teaching biblical apostolic doctrine. This is very important. Very important because in the second half of the first century, Paul and the other apostles that we know are so famous for what they did, they're going off the scene. They are leaving. They are going to soon die. Some have already died. And the year is somewhere between 64, 67 AD, a little over 30 years after Christ's crucifixion. And, and scores of churches have been planted by these apostles, many of them by other bond servants. And we find they are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's a cornerstone. So these churches are founding on words written by the prophets of the Old Testament and by the apostles of the New Testament. And this apostolic testimony concerning God and Christ have been sufficient for the salvation of tens of thousands of Christians already. If you remember when we looked, you recall 1 John, when we studied through that, how important the apostolic eyewitness was. Because you don't need to understand the roles of elders, the roles of deacons. You don't need to understand exactly how the church functions through church doctrine, that, that word's ecclesiology. You don't need to understand all of that to recognize that you are a sinner and realize that Christ is the Savior and be saved from the penalty of your sins. Amen? You don't have to understand everything to be saved. The problem comes that Jesus didn't only come just to provide salvation. It wasn't just for that. He came to build a church. 
So, so once you're saved and, and you receive your, your ticket to heaven, that's not the end. He wants you to become part of his church. And, and as we always say, the, the church is not a building. The church is a community of people who serve Jesus Christ here on earth. And it's where Christians come, they worship, they learn scriptures, they become equipped by the word to serve, and together we become co-laborers in kingdom building. Simply said, the church exists to edify and multiply. Edify and multiply. And, and you know, while the apostles were around, they were able to exert apostolic authority. They had authority. They were able to maintain cohesive structure because they had a physical presence here on earth. They were able to appoint local church leaders because they were here. They were able to confront and discipline false teachers face to face. How are we going to do all those things? We can't just pick up the phone and call Peter or Paul and say, can you help me out here? It's impossible. How are we going to maintain order and prevent confusion? Because when you get a bunch of sinners together, there isn't some kind of structure, some kind of leadership. It becomes a free-for-all. And rather than working together, it comes where everybody just wants to get their own way. They want to do their own thing. And, And that is what happened in a church in Corinth. There was division. There was disorder. Really, they were looking, acting like imbeciles, really. You read through the book. And, and, and if you look at some churches today, they behave as if Paul wrote 1 Corinthians as the church how-to manual or a blueprint on how to do church rather than what Paul really intended as a letter of correction to what they were doing. They view Corinth as a church role model you know, 1 Corinthians was a very early letter written. Very early in church history. Um, it, written long before these pastoral epistles that we're going to study through over the next few months. And, and the letter of 1 Corinthians was a rebuke to Corinth. It wasn't an endorsement of Corinth, the church that was there. It, it was to correct disorderly and bizarre, bizarre behavior that is being practiced in that local church. It's because everybody was doing their own thing. Is what you find out when you read that letter. And fortunately, the apostle Paul, he was alive, able to intervene. And, and he writes in chapter 14, towards the end of the letter, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints. Not just Corinth. All. And in verse 33, he says, All things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Corinth was a church of disorder that displeased God. And in that same chapter is where we see the verse that Pastor Weiler brought to us last week, that all things are be, to be done for the edification of the saints, for building up of the saints. All things, in all churches. No exceptions. So the apostolic presence allowed for apostolic correction of doctrinal error. And in fact, the largest portions of the New Testament epistles or letters that we read, uh, the majority, we observe the apostles correcting erroneous behavior. That's what we see most of the time. Not all the time. But the apostles were the authority. 
But what happens when they die? What happens when they die? Who would prevent chaos? Who is going to teach the truth? Who will be responsible for correction and discipline when things are disorderly? Who is going to step up and defend the church against false doctrine? And who is even going to decide who steps up? If you ask a certain church that is headquartered in Rome, their answer is apostolic succession. Their claim is is that the apostolic era, it hasn't ended, they would say. It didn't end, but that that top apostle in Matthew 16, uh, supposedly he was designated by Christ as a representative of Christ. His name was Peter. And, and Peter chooses a replacement apostle who still oversees things, they would claim. And for 2,000 years, this succession continues. So there is one church father. They call him in Latin, Papa. And the Papa, or Pope, gets to be the referee in church doctrine, calling what is in, what is out. Holy Scripture, that was the, which was written long ago, remains important, but it becomes subservient to apostolic declaration, to tradition. That which is declared here and now supersedes what was declared back then. And the Papa, the Pope, ex cathedra, they call it in Latin, which just means from the chair of Peter, he gets to declare, and he is infallible. And he passes that scepter from generation to generation via what they call apostolic succession. And that's, that's how the Catholic Church is governed. It's their ecclesiology. It's how they function. Papal succession is their changing of the guard. That, however, is not what we find in the Bible. It is not biblically accurate. God had a better idea. Instead, the Holy Spirit guided several apostles to write down in infallible letters concerning how the church functions and and how we identify leaders and, and how the local church is structured and how generation changes to generation, etc., etc. For example, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Wait, Peter just said he is a fellow elder. Didn't claim anything more than that, did he? I, Peter, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He says, elder, two elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. Here we find the term shepherd we, we translate it pastor. Uh, and it's the role of an elder to pastor the flock, shepherd the flock. So pastor and elder, are, they're not separate offices. Pastoring is what the elder does. Shepherding is what the elder does. And Peter continues saying, exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. So the elder shepherds and exercises oversight. James writes, and I've said in the past that I believe that this um, indicates a church member who has fallen ill due to um, 
disobedience or defiance sin actually against the church. Nonetheless, James writes, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders or overseers of the church. The, the church has overseers. Here James uses the same Greek word that Peter just used. It's called presbyteros. And, and it simply indicates a group of overseers. Group of elders. That's where, where you get the term, or another denomination gets the term Presbyterian. They just use that term, presbyteros, uh, uh, to describe the elders. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 13, 17, uh, we love this one. Pastor, Pastor Weiler and I want this one to be the first that's memorized in, uh, in the youth groups and everything. I'm kidding. But it is a fact. It shows structure. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they will keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. The overseers are going to be accountable for what they do. And he says, do not, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you, uh, the writer of Hebrews says. Again, we, we see that the church has defined leadership structure. I'll do one more. We've, we've looked at this extensively over the last year. It's in Acts chapter 20. And Luke records Paul calling the elders to the church in Ephesus, calling them together. And this is for Paul's final farewell. And, and Paul says to them, be on your guard. He's calling to the elders now. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, we see that word. To shepherd, pastor, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here again we find elders, presbyteros, instructed to behave and act as overseers, episkopos, that's where we get the word bishop. They act as overseers and they have the responsibility of shepherding the flock. So all of this we see indicates one group of elders. So the Holy Spirit has sown threads of ecclesiology, threads of this church structure throughout the New Testament. We can find it in Acts. We can find it in the epistles. We can find it even from Christ himself in Matthew 16. And, but in addition, that isn't the only place that we find it. It's scattered throughout the epistles. In addition, nearing the end of Paul's life and approaching the close now of the apostolic era, the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to write three special letters, three specific letters. Two of them were to a young pastor named Timothy, which we get first and second Timothy. The third one is written to a young man named Titus, who was on the island of Crete. So we get that letter Titus, first and second Timothy and Titus. And, and these are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. And this is because the, con the content of the letters instructs pastors how to oversee Christ's church at the absence of the apostles, once they're off the scene. The content is clearly much more administrative than corrective. Much more administrative. That doesn't mean that there isn't doctrinal correction. But when the correction is given, it's not normally correction of Timothy and Titus themselves. It's given them the ability themselves to make corrections. It's given for the purpose of assigning Timothy and Titus the ability to correct and deal with others who must be corrected. 
Titus 1.5, again, right at the beginning of Titus's letter, chapter 1. For this reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. So there we see some authority. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious men who must be silenced for their upsetting whole families, he tells Titus. They're upsetting people. There we see the problem. And then in verse 13 of chapter 1, he tells Titus, For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in faith. Strong correction, he prescribes. So here we observe the the use of the pastoral correction in part of this. We find a similar tone in, in just the third verse of 1 Timothy, which will be starting next week. And Paul writes, As I urge you, Timothy, upon my departure for Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men to not teach strange doctrines. There's doctrinal problems. So, so these letters provide for correction, yet that isn't their focus. Pastoral correction is not their focus. Their primary focus, the goal of these letters, is a properly functioning church. A properly functioning church. That's what God wants to see. Order and not disorder. Order and not disorder. So that's what these letters concentrate on. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, we kind of see what is a purpose statement. We see, we see Paul's purpose statement for writing Timothy. And, and he tells Timothy and us, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. Paul was hoping to come to him before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That's the purpose of these pastoral letters. How one should conduct himself in the household of God, the church of the living God. That's straightforward. We're going to find a lot of stuff in here, how the church functions as we go through 1 Timothy and then complement it with 2 Timothy and Titus. So, so these pastoral epistles, they provide instructions about the proper administration of the household of God, the church. So a, a portion of these letters will provide description, the qualification of church leaders. Since there will be, what, a changing of the guard, right? There's going to be a changing of the guard each generation. So we must know what type of man is qualified to be a shepherd elder, a shepherding elder. They, they need to be moral, we'll find. They need to be firm with God's word, yet also sensible and fair. They can't be unjust, we'll find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And Titus affirms the pastors must have the ability to teach others with sound doctrine. Have to. Elders have to be able to teach others. We'll also review the office of deacon, which we'll see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Deacons will have very similar character qualifications but they have an entirely different function according to God's Word. In Scriptures, deacons never oversee. God's Word says they serve. The Greek word diakonos actually means to serve others, as as if you are serving a meal at a table. They are servants. So uh, with the deacons, we don't find the requirement to be able to teach others. They don't have to be able to teach. Concerning pastors and elders, the body of Christ needs to be able to observe that those who make vital decisions or oversee, that they're able to demonstrate that they can properly handle God's word. It's a credibility issue. It's a confidence issue of the flock to know that the overseers 
can, they can visibly observe overseers handling the Word of God. It doesn't mean that every overseer has to preach every Sunday. It doesn't mean they have to preach regularly. It means they need to be observed as properly handling the Word of God. With those who competently fill a role of serving, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is going to tell us that they achieve a high, a high standing before God. It's a very important role. But with, with those who are the role of serving, people aren't as concerned about whether they can teach. They're not making the same critical decisions. And, and, and so we will find going through these letters that they invest a good part of real estate in, in describing the qualifications of, and duties of elders and deacons. good part of the letters will be assigned to that. But that's not all. There's a lot more we're going to learn. In addition, we're going to discover that Christ's church is very much identified as a household. It is a family. And, and as with any Christian family, there are functions and roles that are assigned according to age and according to gender. And, and we'll observe guidelines as to proper church conduct for males and females. How does a man approach God in worship? What type of attitude does he have? How does a woman of excellence dress? How does she behave? From who do women learn how to be excellent in God's eyes? How do you learn to become a Proverbs 31 woman? From the world around you? From the movie stars? From female politicians? From female sports figures? Or from God's word? We learn from God's Word. In 1 Timothy, we're going to find God's Word flies directly in the face of everything that our culture tells a woman she should be. Flies in the face of what our culture is saying that a man should be as well. And we're going to see in this letter, in addition, that God puts a priority on evangelistic prayer in His church. And calls for Christians to be focused upon people being saved. All people, not just the ones that we like. Every type of person, every creed, every background, every place in society that they fill, we are to be concerned about them becoming saved. And we'll find that God wants His church to be concentrated on that which is eternal. Not so focused on what is temporal. So we're going to see that the pastoral epistles, uh, in them there will be a diminishing, a diminishing of everything temporal. Money and possessions. Not important according to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul tells Timothy, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we had food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation, which plunges men into destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, all kinds of evil. Then he finally says to Timothy, But flee from these things, you man of God. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. That's what we see a man of God pursuing. So the pastor is to be a role model of contentedness with what he has. It should be so. Yet at the same time, we're going to see as we study through these epistles, that the pastoral epistles remind Christians that that committed and skilled pastors are also supposed to be highly valued and compensated. It is a paid position, we'll find out. 2 Timothy 2, verse 6, in regard to pastoral compensation, says, The hardworking farmer 
ought to be the first to receive the share of his crops. There's to be compensation, and that is clarified in several other verses. So there are crops. There, there, there are things that, that uh, grow in the church. Well, who else shares in the crops? Who else is there? Well, speaking so much about money, the pastorals provide guidelines about benevolence. Who receives benevolence? Who doesn't receive benevolence? How do we know? Who receives financial assistance? Who doesn't? Are there firm principles on it? There are. They're going to be challenging. We'll see that the restrictions are quite tight. Um, We'll talk about spiritual giftedness. A lot of people have questions about that. What is the difference between a natural talent that anybody has, believer or unbeliever, What's the difference between that and a spiritual gift that is used to serve the body of Christ? We'll talk about that. Scripture will tell us. There's a lot of confusion about spiritual gifts in our society. So we will learn how they are identified, and Scripture will answer that question. And perhaps most important to this whole series of epistles, most important we're going to see the priority and the preeminence of the preaching of the Word. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And then in 2 Timothy, he says, Preach the Word. That's Dallas Seminary's motto. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own lusts. That's what the modern church is doing. Getting teachers according to their own desires rather than God's desires. So we're going to talk about that and the the power of the transformation of the life that is available through the preaching of the Word. Transformation resides in the proclamation of the Word. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is inerrant in the original manuscripts. It's completely reliable. Written over a period of some 1,500 years, recorded in 66 different books by at least 40 different authors. It's divinely inspired. The Holy Spirit guided the authors as they wrote. And we're going to see they wrote on every topic under the sun. Everything. They wrote... Uh, including historical figures, people in history. They write about ancient events that occurred. They're going to write and document geographic locations in the Bible. And, and the Bible has never, never been found to be wrong on any single point. Written by 40 different people, 66 books, over 1,500 years, and an error didn't slip in there. Don't tell me God didn't write this book. And so we're going to see, how do we know that God wrote it? How can we know observing? Not only God tells us that he did, not only the coherency and consistency of Scripture we know he did, how else can we know and can we prove it? We can. So we're going to look at the inspiration of Scripture as we study through this book. We can prove that it is God's word that has gone out. Gone out all over the earth, in every language, everywhere, that we're putting the scriptures into the culture's native 
language. We're going to talk about that as well. The Bible can be translated. The Bible has been translated. You don't have to be on the island of New Guinea and learn Greek and Hebrew to hear God's word. You don't have to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You can be in America. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to hear God's infallible message. So we'll talk about translating, how we know that what we have now is the same as what we have then, had then. And I will assure you that Scripture and history and the evidence that we have, the physical evidence that we have, assures us it is the same message that the apostles wrote down 2,000 years ago. This is just a sampling, just a sampling of all the good stuff that we're going to see in this letter um, that we'll find in these pastoral epistles. Do churches need to hear this stuff today? Oh, we do. We do. And, and the problem is, most churches, they can't teach a lot of what is found in these epistles today because it flies directly against their church doctrine and tradition. So they ignore it. They, preserve, they prefer to preserve their tradition of man. They refuse to be corrected by God's word. Is your tradition held so closely, so dear, even if it doesn't appear in Scripture, that you want to enforce it on others? Then it would be a tradition. If you're enforcing something on others that is not clearly revealed in God's Word, it is a tradition. Nothing wrong with some traditions. We all have preferences. But what is most important This is what we need to determine. One more thing about traditions. Because we're going to be challenged in this book, every single one of us, including myself. We're going to look exactly what the Word of God says about church function, about how it works. And we need to be willing to listen. Because my Bible says in it, you don't take anything away from it, and you also don't add anything to it. We can't add to it that which isn't in Scripture itself. And make it doctrine. We can't make it, we can't make it compulsory on others if it isn't in the Bible. And many, many of our closely held traditions are going to be exposed by God's word, directly by God's word, which I think should just about be fine with everybody. With everybody, in Mark seven chapter, uh, Mark chapter seven verse five, I'll close with this: The Pharisees and the scribes had confronted Jesus again. And they told Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the Pharisees, but eat their bread with impure hands? See, they had made up a tradition they want everybody else to have to be bound to. And Jesus said to them, Jesus again, always pointing back to Scripture, always, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, Jesus said, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commands of God, you hold the tradition of men. Jesus was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. There are going to be a lot of things and many I didn't even mention that we're going to look at in, in these epistles. I'm going to work verse by verse through First Timothy. Add in the other epistles as we go. It's going to be good. It's going to be, we're going to be edified and 
pray, uh, we pray, Lord, we're going to be multiplied. And that's what God's Word does. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Your Word is so encouraging to us, so enlightening to us, Lord. It is the light. It is, it is God, our, our guiding light. And uh, it exposes us as we step into the light, Lord. I pray that we will be willing to stand in the light, look through the light, Lord, and that you would change us, that you would help our hearts, Lord. You've redeemed us, Lord. You have bought us with your precious blood, and we have eternal gratefulness, Lord. Now we really want to grow. We want to grow individually, Lord. We want to grow as a body. We want to be stronger. We want to know, Lord, why we believe what we believe. Lord, we pray that these epistles, the rest of your scriptures, Lord, that will augment them, that that it'll change us. Lord, make us a stronger body. Make us stronger individuals, Lord God, through through this, this series, through the preaching of your holy word, Lord. Guide us, correct us, teach us, edify us, encourage us. Lord, draw us closer to one another. We ask it in the holy and exalted name of Christ. Amen.